Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is January 29th, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And uh, joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, even more all over the planet, we have uh, our full complement of hosts, uh, Erica, Tiffany, Doug, Gabby, and Elliot. And we have a very special guest host with us today, uh, Harrison. So welcome, everybody. Hello, everyone. So we've got a, uh, a really good show for you. Um, hopefully we will be able to connect these dots in a uh, cohesive, understandable way. But we are going to be talking about um, psi phenomena, uh, you know, spelled P-S-I, so uh, paranormal, paranormal phenomena, um, sleep paralysis, uh, you know, uh, issues that abductees have, um, different kind of things like that. Uh, we're going to kind of dip our toes into the realm of uh, the strange and weird and fringe. Um, <clears throat> depending on how you look at it, some of it is not so fringe because there's plenty of documented evidence that it actually does occur. Um, but from the uh, perspective of our show, uh, we are going to talk about the health-related issues uh, that arise around these kind of experiences. Um, so it may seem like a bit of a stretch at the outset, but we do have plenty of material, and I think that we'll be able to have a good discussion around this. Um, so first, we're going to start off by talking about a, uh, a documentary that we all watched uh, that is on Netflix. Uh, so if you have that, uh, you can check it out. It's called The Nightmare, and it was a documentary about sleep paralysis, and it followed, uh, I think, eight people who had different, uh, you know, forms and types of sleep paralysis and what their experiences were like. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating, uh, a little bit terrifying, um, but mm-hmm. definitely uh, fascinating. I really felt for some of these people, they're essentially tortured, you know, um, psychologically, mentally, and sometimes even physically. Um, so I wanted to ask you guys just to get us kicked off here. If you've had any experiences Similar to that, I <clears throat> I personally have never had sleep paralysis or any any kind that I can remember. Um, so no, you're lucky. Not something that I'm yeah I'm not familiar with it at all. But uh, how about you guys? Yeah, I I, um, I, I deal with it fairly regularly. Um, just this this kind of sensation. It usually happens when I'm waking up, and what'll happen is is kind of like it seems like my mind wakes up, and I'm very you know completely cognizant of what's going on around me, where I am, what time it is, what day it is, all that kind of stuff, but I cannot move. My body is completely paralyzed. And it's, you know, I I just always have this sensation where I kind of have to fight my way out of it and kind of like really like kind of struggle to move. Often I'll try and like, you know, just start trying to wiggle my foot, you know, just try and like wiggle it back and forth. And then um, it's, it's like an uphill battle though. It's like so difficult to try and move and eventually kind of, bring myself out of this this uh, paralysis and and then when I do finally wake up I'm so groggy and really have this incredibly heavy feeling around me so it it's a very unpleasant experience and it's something uh I I I as I recall I've dealt with it my entire life How how often does it happen Uh it seems to go in waves 
Um, I've kind of correlated it with stress, although I don't know if it's a, a clean correlation. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at, at the moment, I would say it doesn't happen that often, maybe like once a month or something like that. But in it, at points, it's happened like, you know, once a week or once every couple of days or something like that. Um, it used to happen to me quite a bit whenever I would take a nap. Um, you know, if I was, if I was, uh, napping in the daytime, it seemed to happen much more frequently then than it would in my, my nighttime sleep. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the documentary went into a lot about, um, you know, the sensing of a presence there. And, um, I've certainly had that experience, although for me, it's mostly just the paralysis. It's mostly just, uh, I don't have necessarily any, um, or, or not often do I have any kind of like psi phenomena related to it. It's just kind of this paralysis feeling. Mm-hmm. Do you correlate it with something else or just stress? Like, for example, something you ate or the way even that you were lying you know, on bed or something else? I've never been able to make that kind of direct connection. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if there was there was some uh, connection there. I know I've uh, I've heard from other like you know people who have posted on our forum and said that they notice that if they if they kind of um, do a couple of cheats on the diet, it's much more likely to happen. I've never made that co- correlation myself, but um, it, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. What about you guys? Anybody else have those kinds of experiences? I've had. Uh a couple where I felt like I couldn't move, but I wasn't particularly distressed about it. But just uh, nightmares in general, I seem to notice like um, before I changed my diet, I would have much more frequent nightmares, and they were terrifying. Like I was always being chased or pursued, like nonstop, and I'd just be running and running and running and trying to escape, and I just couldn't escape, and then it would the whole nightmare would like start all over again from the beginning. It would be like a mm. loop and I just couldn't get away. Um, I would be running and then I'd break into flight and then I <laughs> mm. like fly like uh, a couple hundred feet. And then sometimes there would always be like a German shepherd chasing me. But huh. since I changed my diet, I had fewer and fewer nightmares. So that's, I guess it's one of the pluses of a ketogenic diet or a paleo diet. But I also notice, like, if I'm sleeping on my back, I tend to have nightmares versus if I'm sleeping on my side. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought about, like, um, the brain having its own lymph system. And there was one article on thought. I can't remember the title of it. Like, if you lie on your side, either the left or the right, it helps your brain, like, uh, the lymph system kind of moves toxins out easier. So maybe if I'm laying on my back, the toxins build up for me to have a nightmare. I don't know. Mm. I would, um, there is another type of nightmare, which is called popularly uh, the mortal nightmare. Some people are like struggling in their sleep, and unfortunately, some people actually die. It has been mm. correlated with a type of cardiac arrhythmia. You know, it's called the Brugada syndrome. And it's basically um, a specific electrical activity of the heart that makes for, you know, that facilitates sudden cardiac arrest. And um, it's very frequent in the Asian population, like Filipinos, and they have their folk tale related to it. 
like a specific type of ghost that comes to visit in the night and lays down with a chest. And these people say that they are uh, that they will have the nightmare more frequently if they lay on their left side, you know, mm. kind of like it's squeezing the heart, you know, so to speak. But I thought it was interesting because it was sort of like an electrical vulnerability, you know, the sodium channel in the heart. So, like, I wonder, you know, is there like an organic cause that could facilitate these types of nightmares? Was there some clues on the documentary that I didn't watch? I'm sorry, but <laughs> I'm curious about it. One well, thing that was interesting in the document oh, go ahead. was this go ahead, go ahead. Um, screeching noise that people were hearing before it would happen. Has anybody mm. experienced that, like almost like a high-pitched feedback or like a electrical kind of tingling that yeah. also described in there too? Or an electrical shock just as they're falling asleep? Yeah, I've never yep. experienced anything like that. That was one thing that definitely resonated with me. I've had that for many years. Hmm. That, like, right as I'm falling to sleep, it's usually in that, you know, 10 to 15-minute period where I'm trying to fall asleep, and I'll get a flash of, like, bluish-white light uh, behind my eyelids and a re- an actual audible sound in my ears. Just, and it feels hmm. like you're getting shocked. It's kind of strange. That's happened to me for a long time. Hmm. Wow. It's interesting, though, Gabby, that you bring up the the whole uh, you know cultural idea, because one of the things I mentioned in the uh, the documentary is that it seems like every different culture, um, going back you know for many many years, kind of have these folk tales that uh, surround this type of phenomenon. You know, different uh, evil visitors in the middle of the night. You know, there's the incubus, the succubus, the um, you know, there's this idea of a, there's a, a some one culture that talks about a cat that comes and sits on your chest, and uh, you know, there's the shadow people. Um, it just it seems like it's it's a phenomenon that's that's you know grounded in just being human. You know, it's something that that kind of transcends these cultural uh, cultural barriers. Yeah, it was even written about back in 1664 by a Dutch physician. And he titled his work of the nightmare, and they even claimed it happened in medieval Persia and ancient Greece, and in China in 400 BCE. So it seems like it's a, an ageless and universal sphere itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing. I, you know, it's a, it's a huge topic. Um, obviously, in the in the span of our show, we're not going to cover all of high strangeness um, is just a, a wealth of information there. Um, but I find uh, interesting kind of from the health perspective, and I guess you would say kind of depressing, uh, is, you know, that people have a really hard time finding any kind of solutions to this. Uh, I, I doubt that very many people are going to their doctor, you know, saying that, you know, they're they're paralyzed when they go to sleep or they're, uh, they're seeing, you know, entities or beings of some kind. I'm sure that some people do, um, but I would think that kind of by and large, um, you know, this would be, I guess, embarrassing uh, to talk about for a lot of people. So it's, it's unfortunate, I think, that, uh, that people can't really approach it from a, a critical perspective. They're seen as having some sort of 
dental health problem or, mm. you know, they're just imagining it. That's just in your head, that kind of thing. Well, in the documentary, they even talked, like a, a couple of the people actually said that they had gone to doctors about it and, and, and got a rather dismissive um, attitude. Oh, did we lose Doug? Sounds like he disappeared. That's <laughs> 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 the shadow people. <laughs> well, what was interesting in the documentary, too, is how a lot of these people um, started having it as children, and it continued on throughout their life. And, um, you know, this fear of, of monsters in the closet and then whether or not the parent dismisses it as being real or not, you know, that mm-hmm. that definitely plays a role in it. And that some of these people suffered this, like, nightly. I mean, mm-hmm. that in, a, in and of itself would tend to make you a little bit cuckoo, I think, you know, where you're afraid to go to sleep. And uh, two of the men in the, in the uh, documentary, you know, would stay up all night. One guy put like five TVs in his room because he found that having the TV on would kind of keep the the visitors at bay, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. no. And then after uh, yeah, a while, that, that stopped. And then he just got rid of all the TVs. But one of the guys said that he started having this kind of visitors in the night when he remembers being like a baby in a crib. Yeah. And it went with him, like, all throughout his whole life. I was surprised that so many of the people could actually speak articulately about what was going on with them if they have all these nightmares and sleep paralysis episodes several times a week and they are still able to function. I wanted to hear, like, more about, like, what their lives are like outside of that and how they got on. Yeah. There was that one yeah. guy who... Um, he- who basically said that he felt like he was going insane. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if he came up with any solutions to um, to deal with his sleep paralysis. But there was there was a woman who said that um, who said that she found a way um, to basically deal with it. And I think that it stopped. It's basically over for her, sort of indefinitely. Um, mm-hmm. And that was that was to show in. Because she'd she'd basically be asleep, she'd wake up, and she'd see these these weird beings, these shadow people, and these different sort of like creatures or whatever come into her room. And um, what I found was really interesting was the way that she said um, she would she would initially react with fear, yet one day she 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 chose to to sort of get angry at it. So instead of um instead of sort of um fearing it and 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 whatever um yeah she she basically said no get out of my room you know get out of my room you know this is my room this is not yours leave me alone and um and she said that all of a sudden it just left completely i thought that was really interesting yeah well have you guys um i haven't watched the documentary but you know i've just uh I'm familiar with the phenomenon, of course, I've, I've read about it in numerous sources, and one thing that I've noticed is that there seems to be um, a couple different, um, maybe types of sleep paralysis mixed in with the, under the label. Now, one is just the phenomenon of being immobilized, and so that will just be like you've described, where it's like, uh, like you said, Doug, where your mind is awake, but your body is kind of asleep still, and, it, and you can't move it. And so that, can, that in itself can be a terrifying experience. 
And then there's the phenomenon of, while in that state, being aware of or seeing um, some kind of strange being in the room. So, uh, first of all, um, do we know if there's any kind of um, analysis or even just anecdotal um, accounts of, like, how many people or who experience this just feel the, the paralysis, or if they also see the beings, or if it's uh, if you can have both experiences, or if people kind of experience one or the other? Is uh, do, you, do any of you guys know anything about that? I couldn't find. I'm not aware of any statistics. Yeah. There was an article on Scott called the waking nightmare of sleep paralysis. And he gave like a couple, maybe just one statistic, like 80% to 90% of dreams experienced during sleep paralysis are nightmares. And dreams that are, you know, not going on during sleep paralysis, only like one-third of those are nightmares. So, I don't know, I think there's something to the whole being paralyzed just intensifies the entire situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on Wikipedia it said over uh, 3 million people suffer from it a year, but they just said sleep paralysis, so it doesn't really... Mm-hmm. And then they had a statistic of uh, sufferers anywhere between 5 to 60%, which is... Yeah. No, but again, that's just the, the overall definition of sleep paralysis. So whether they're accompanied by these, um, like you were saying, shadow people or the hat man or these cat-like, or the hag even, you know, depending on the culture. Yeah. It seems like if you, if you, you know, if you do have these visitor experiences, they always seem to be accompanied by the paralysis, but the paralysis doesn't necessarily have these beings um, associated with them. Yeah. So it seems like, yeah. Okay, yeah. How about I, well, the, the first time... The first time I heard about it um, was actually I was in grade 11 in uh, an English class in school, in high school. And the, our teacher, uh, I think we were taking or teaching, she was teaching Macbeth at the time, um, told us about just out of the blue one day about her experience. And she said that, uh, that she had it regularly, but she remembered, I, I believe the first time she had it was when she was a teenager. And she just described a typical, uh, typical experience of it, of waking up paralyzed and this this kind of giant dark figure that was just terrifying so that was the first time i'd ever heard about it and of course it kind of like freaked out the whole class because um you know we were just a bunch of kids that hadn't really heard anything about this um but then you know as the years went on um you know i read a lot more books and watched documentaries heard a lot from people and you know found out that it's just a a lot more common than um than i'd thought of before now, um, there's and one, one of the contexts that I've heard about it in, of course, is um, in in relation to so-called alien abductions. Um, mm. So I don't know if we want to if we want to get into that now, or if we. Um, what do you think? Sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> well, because so first of all. Um, alien abductions, of course, is a, a huge topic. There's a ton of information about it. It's all. It's, there's a ton of books about it, TV shows, and um, I mean, you'll hear sometimes you'll hear reports in the news, and of course, it'll be kind of ridiculed. This whole idea of alien abduction, but again, it's an experience that a lot of people go through 
and that is often quite terrifying. Um, but one of the responses that you'll you'll get from scientists or doctors or just even regular people or um, you know internet writers is that alien abduction is just sleep paralysis. And so sleep paralysis is kind of like the explanation that they give for this alien abduction phenomenon. Um, so well, there's a, a couple issues there. First of all, and that is um, that. A lot of people who experience alien abduction, um, they they experience these things happening while they are fully awake. So right there, that kind of gives the lie to to that explanation for all of alien abductions. Because a lot of people that experience, um, you know, what they call an abduction experience, will be awake. They may be driving somewhere. They may be um, just doing something, either indoors, at home, um, but totally awake. And then they'll have that experience, that typical experience of missing time, and they'll have conscious, uh, conscious memory and awareness of this event taking place. So it seems like this can be a totally different um, phenomenon that, that they're not necessarily awake or they're not necessarily asleep. They're not in bed. It doesn't necessarily happen in the middle of the night. It can happen any time of the day. Um, but bef maybe before getting into alien abductions a bit, back to sleep paralysis, um, and if we kind of try to figure out or wonder or speculate what's actually going on, I guess the question needs to be asked, well, if people are having these experiences, if they're in a state of paralysis and they experience these beings, what is the nature of these beings? Are they real or not? Are they hallucinations? Are they brought on? Are they kind of um, hypnagogic or hypnopompic? hallucinations associated with you know falling asleep or waking up and basically like a dream that takes more of a, a real form as if maybe your brain or your mind isn't quite sure if it's dreaming or not um, of course the the mainstream typical response will be well it, well you know these kinds of beings don't exist therefore it has to be a hallucination now <clears throat> um, of course that may be the case it may be that that being in this state, maybe having a, a nightmare in this state, the, the fear gets um, amplified or revved up and ends up taking the form of a type of, of hallucination where um, you'll actually see something or be aware of something, but it could be you know, totally a, produ a product of, a, of your subconscious. <clears throat> so I don't know, that's a possibility. But who knows? Um, you know, this world is very strange, and I know we've talked about these kind of phenomena on a truth perspective and, we've, I mean, we've discussed them on, on, pre, on several shows. Is that, I mean, there's weird stuff that goes on. And so who knows? Maybe there is some kind, something real about this phenomenon. And let's just say, like, for the sake of argument, that there are such things as kind of otherworldly beings or, you know, things that can interact with people. Um, it may be that, this, that the, those are two kind of separate phenomena where you have the sleep paralysis, which is just kind of a strictly, let's say, maybe biological phenomenon where you are in a state of paralysis, and then in that state, you may or may not have an experience with, um, you know, something other. And mm -hmm. if, there, if there is a tie with alien abductions, that could be something similar. So say, I mean, if it is this biological process, who knows, maybe if alien abduction really occurs, whatever the nature of aliens, that state is kind of induced, and then something terrifying happens to you while they're in that state. So I don't know, I think we just need to keep our options open. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on that or what the nature of this experience really is? I think what's possible is uh, related that 
for instance, um, it surprises me how universal some things are, like the hat person somebody says. Because I remember when I was very young, like five, six years old, like I will see like, yes, like a shadow person with like wearing a coat and a hat. And I was just aware that it was there. And uh, yes, it was sort of frightening, but, you know, I didn't have sleep paralysis. And uh, I saw it on various nights, and, and on no occasion I had sleep paralysis. I just like turned my back against it and went to bed, you know, went to sleep. You know. Mm-hmm. So, and I think other people have reported the same that they have seen like you know shadow people, so to speak, but they didn't have sleep paralysis. So mm-hmm. just like being aware that there is a presence there, so you know, right there, you know, it's a another possibility, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think I think what's most um, interesting is the consistency of the descriptions of these um, these sort of beings or entities that people see when they're having these experiences. Like um, it's a rel- relatively sort of consistent um, description of say like a, a shadow person in a human form or um, a, a shadow person with a hat with a group of other sort of shadow people who are almost like reporting to the guy with the hat. Um, there's there's these sort of consistent descriptions, and they they apply to to many of these cases. And so, like what I would say that that suggests that it's not merely like an individual sort of subjective phenomena. Um, it, you know, it, if all of these people are experiencing the same thing, um, and they're from uh, every different culture, and it's been documented, then it sort of it, it suggests that you know, this does have some place in, in the objective world, you know, something is actually happening. I guess from a, a, a Jungian c- perspective, you could sort of say that, um, I mean, I know that there are some people who basically say that the reason that everyone sees the same things is because it's some sort of aspect of our own shadow, our, our sort of unconscious mind that manifests. It's sort of like a universal archetype. Um, deeply embedded in the human consciousness and so it, it you know like uh, we all sort of access it but um, yeah there's definitely uh, some sort of consistency um, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah no I think, well, the fact that it's so... I think that's a good point that it's, it does there are those um, kind of things that um, seem to, to stretch across cultures but one, just to get a bit speculative here, it, it seems to me like <clears throat> it's almost like when um, one is kind of between those sleep and wake uh, states, it's almost like there's like a thinning of the veil there. And it's almost like people have kind of more access to this sort of other world that maybe is always kind of present um, around our uh, waking awareness, but we're, but we're just not aware of it. It's kind of like it's hidden. And it's kind of like when you get into the sleep state, you're you're kind of like between these two worlds, the the kind of the dream world and the and the waking world, and it, it, suddenly you have access and, and are able to see these these beings that kind of exist in this in this reality. That's of course very speculative, but it makes me think about um, there is a theory uh, that um, has been stated about uh, schizophrenics that um, they're not just completely crazy and having these uh, insane hallucinations all the time, but they're actually able to see something that the rest of us can't see, that there may be, you know, for some reason their perception is, is a little bit shifted so that they're able to kind of perceive this, this other reality that most of us aren't aware of on a regular basis. So 
So, you know, and, you know, but then at the same time, you, you, you're, you're bound, you know, you're still a subjective being. You're bound to kind of interpret what you're seeing according to what you know. So, you know, uh, people who are, um, you know, Christians uh, might perceive demons because there's a lot of, uh, of, of talk about uh, demons and, and kind of Christian mythology um, versus somebody who is, you know, an atheist um, might perceive things that are much more humanoid and, and, and human looking. So, yeah, it, it's, of course, again, that's very speculative, but it's, it's, it's interesting nonetheless. Well, back to the point yeah, I, I was made about how it's so universal and it goes across cultures, it kind of reminded me of near-death experiences that people report. Like, they all seem to, like, go through this tunnel and they see this bright light. They feel this sensation of love and warmth and maybe they connect with, you know, relatives that passed away before them. That seems to go through, like, all different cultures. And with this uh, sleep paralysis, it seems kind of like the same thing, like, in some way, we're kind of hardwired to have or to experience these events in some way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking about the the wide um, kind of range <clears throat> of variety of these different types of encounters, uh, it makes me think of the work of uh, John Keel, uh, especially the book Operation Trojan Horse. Um, if our listeners haven't checked that out, if you get a chance, definitely read that book. It's it, it's supremely fascinating. Um, <clears throat> but Keel kind of posits, at least from what I gathered, or he, he talks about o- overall the idea that there there may be these entities. We don't necessarily know, uh, you know, where they come from, uh, whether it's in this dimension and another physical place or whether it's from another kind of dimension of reality. Um, but uh, kind of like Elliot was saying, there's this consistency of uh, reporting of the nature of the encounters. And um, Keel posits that they, whoever they are, again, being speculative here, may be able to alter uh, their perception or what they're perceived as um, based on the nature and the experience of the viewer. Um, so kind of mm-hmm. like Doug said, you know, if, you're, if you have a, a heritage of a Christian faith, um, you might see what you think of as a demon or an angel. Um, you know, in the Arab cultures, there's the jinn, um, the, uh, I think it's the Buddhists that talk about, like, the hungry ghost. Um, and then, of course, we have shadow people, men in black, you know, the classic kind of gray alien and all of these different things. But they're all presented in uh, situations that have um, overarching similarities of experience, um, but they present themselves in different ways. Um, <clears throat> like one of my favorite stories from Operation Trojan Horse uh, is a farmer who saw a craft land in his field and he went out to the craft and there were um, beings there who looked sort of like men um, and that they were working, they were working on the craft with like tools that we would be familiar with, like wrenches, you know, and they had asked him, uh, I think if he had a wrench and then inside the craft, there was like a wood stove and they were making pancakes on this wood stove and they asked him to go fetch a bucket of water. And so he did. And after the whole thing was over, they actually left him with some pancakes. And so he actually, you know, he had this, <laughs> he had this physical remainder from the experience. Um, it's, it's so bizarre. Of course, I would think like the average person would want to just say, well, that guy's totally nuts. Um, and he was having a dream or some kind of schizophrenic hallucination. 
but the thing I find is interesting is that if you if you think of the other, like Harrison, you had said that that word, the other, uh, if they can uh, present themselves in pretty much any way that they see fit, then that leaves the whole, uh, I guess, panoply of these types of experiences open to um, whatever the uh, the the experience and the, um, I'm thinking of this word, uh, I guess just the, the nature and the personality of the person and, and what their background is and what they're looking for or what they might be thinking about, uh, it can come up in that way. Um, or I know that another was, possibility. Oh, sorry. No, I was ahead. just going to say, I just wanted to interject one thing. I, it, he, from reading Keel, it seems to actually be more culturally tied, um, not necessarily the experience of the individual, but it seems to... to um, uh, go across the, the culture of the time. Like, you know, back uh, turn of the century, people were having these mysterious airship um, appearances. And they would talk about these airships, like, you know, these, these zeppelins or like uh, blimps or whatever you want to say. Um, whereas, you know, then come the 50s, it started to be these flying saucers. Um, so it's like, it, it's almost like it's not necessarily the individual, but it's almost like they'll, they'll um, conform to the culture. And what uh, what what collectively the culture would maybe expect or or has preconceived notions of? Yeah, I think you know, it's tying it back to sleep paralysis. Um, uh, it just makes me wonder if uh, the people that are experiencing this, especially the really uh, dramatic cases, are uh, experiencing some sort of really uh, traumatic stress uh, in their life. You know, and so it, it, it manifests itself in that way of something very frightening, very stressful, um, taking control away from the person. You know, they're paralyzed, so they can't do anything about it. So if they feel out of control in their life or their experiences, um, you know, they have that kind of ex- that, that kind of experience. Like there, there was the one guy in that documentary we were talking about who, you know, his first experience, like Tiffany said, was when he was in the crib as an infant, Um and that that followed him throughout his whole life. And if you watch him in the film, uh, this poor guy was so uh, nervous. You could tell that he was just racked with anxiety. You know, he was wringing mm-hmm. his hands uh, and touching his face and speaking very nervously. And, you know, <clears throat> it occurs to me that somebody who doesn't have that level of anxiety in their life may, if they do have an encounter of this nature, uh, that it may manifest in a different way because they don't have that immediate kind of fear button that can be played on. Yeah, it, it could be that, that, it is, that it is that, that the, uh, you know, just having that, that kind of uh, stress in your life um, leads to having these sort of archetypal type experiences. But there's the other possibility that, um, you know, having these stresses and things in your life actually provides an opening um, for some actually right. objectively real beings to, to, to kind of, enter and and manipulate um i mean we've we've talked about this kind of thing before that having you know um just in in terms of like health and nutrition that if you know you're you're uh, in a a toxic state and you're eating terrible food and that sort of thing that you're under some kind of stress um that 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 kind of provides an opening for uh these kind of uh, strange experiences or you know maybe uh other dimensional beings that are able to actually feed on your fear and that was actually touched on the in the documentary as well. That um, you know, one guy at one point had had this profound realization that they were actually feeding on this fear, 
and that uh, another uh, woman said that she perceived this black inky stuff coming out of her that she perceived was like this fear that the other being was kind of feeding on and getting stronger because of it. So it's almost like maybe having being in this state makes you more vulnerable. Yeah. I guess I, was, I guess to some <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead, Gabby. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, I guess to some extent, um, by working on um, working on your nutrition, on your health, on your on the way that you um, the way that you perceive the world, and the way that you live your life, essentially, um, you could say that perhaps you erect a certain protective um, barrier that mm-hmm. helps um, maintain the uh, I guess the separation between you and or, or prevents you from facilitating um, this this sort of this feeding to some extent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point because that's what I was going to say. Because we can have some clues um, just from the term sleep paralysis. You know, there is the. It sounds like a physiological response to it, to to stress, an extreme physiological response, like what we call vasovagal reaction when a person is so stressed that they just faint. You know, they just mm-hmm. collapse and like a state of immobilization and you cannot do anything about it, you're just frozen, so to speak. And uh, from our program, Areolus, our breathing and meditation program, it's, um, it comes also a very interesting experience that those people uh, who refuse to do dietary changes, who insist of eating inflammatory foods and um, it seems that they have more trouble adjusting to the to the uh, Baja program, which is specifically designed for uh, liberation of emotions. Mm. And uh, it is interesting because we always insist that okay, we have to stimulate our vagus nerve, uh, the smart vagus which helps us increase our blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, which is where our higher cognitive processes reside. And we have to do that consistently so we are able to deal with the rest of the program more effectively, like our liberation of emotions, we just process them from a higher perspective. But if we keep that part of stimulating the smart vagus and we keep eating inflammatory foods, our experiences are going to be much more negative to the point that we have to tell some people okay, just stop doing that part of the program and just take care of your diet first, you know, for a few months mm. and so forth. So maybe some clues there, you know. Yeah, that yeah. that makes me think of the the um, the relationship between, <clears throat> I guess, the uh, the physical and the etheric. Uh, if we're going to get a little, continue to be a little bit more speculative here, but uh, also, I guess, from a perspective of science, um, thinking of the the idea that all of uh, our physical reality is made up of different modes of vibration. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to stay away from the, like, kind of new agey idea that, well, you just need to raise your vibrational frequency, man, you know, um, <laughs> that, it's, that, it's more, <laughs> that it's more complex and actually kind of concrete than that, um, in that when you are 
specifically like in regards to inflammation. Uh, if you have a lot of inflammation in your body, that can be the cause of many different types of systemic diseases as well as mental instabilities. Um, you know, it can promote the growth of parasites and bacteria uh, within your body that are, that are harming your, your state of wellness. And mm-hmm. uh, if, if you are then, let's say, you know, opening yourself up to certain experiences by having your frequency be off, so to speak, or not in sync, uh, if you think of like a, um, just on a very simple terms, if you think of a wave pattern, uh, you know, if, that, if the, the nodes of the wave pattern are off, um, you know, it's just like if you see, I'm sure people have uh, seen in the past, there was a, a bridge um, that was shown to collapse because it was the, the frequency of like the, the cars or the people walking across the bridge caused it to uh, vibrate in such a way that the whole structure collapsed. <clears throat> and I wish I could remember that specific story, but um, that kind of analogy that if, if you're, if the vibration of the, the matter that makes up your, your physical body is, uh, is not in sync, so to speak, then you are open to these other kind of experiences. And it, it makes me wonder if, um, again, referring to that documentary, there was one of the people who said that uh, as the shadow person got closer and closer to them while they were laying in bed, that there was this crazy vibration and this really loud mm-hmm. sound and that the vibration kept getting closer and closer and it was very menacing. And so I wonder if we think of it in a, in very real kind of physical terms, you know, if people are having encounters with something that is kind of phased out from our reality uh, and their their bodies are not uh, in, in tune with themselves, they're not healthy, um, that, that interaction, the interaction with that energy can be much more damaging, um, you know, because then it'll, it'll basically cascade that into... Uh, not only mental symptoms, but other physical symptoms as well. I don't know. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, yeah, it's, interesting. Uh, it's interesting you talk about um, frequency, Jonathan. I was wondering, perhaps, uh, maybe we could go into a little bit about um, or touch upon information theory. I know Harrison knows quite a lot about information theory. Um, but I was recently reading, uh, again, it was... <laughs> by Jack Cruz, of course, and um, he was talking about how um, how inflammation, um, in terms of inflammation, so inflammation, in terms of dietary inflammation and, and physiologic inflammation, um, it, how that relates to information hmm. is that um, it's essentially entropic, so it promotes more chaos in the body. And so perhaps to some extent, by, um, by consuming a diet that promotes inflammation, which then causes um, or could be um, sort of converted to entropy or uh, lack of inflammation, um, basically by, by eating a, a diet that promotes inflammation, um, perhaps to some extent, um, like Jonathan, you just spoke about um, frequency. Perhaps to some extent, if we are going to get really speculative, then um, then perhaps what allows uh, these experiences or what facilitates these sort of abduction type, sort of um, sleep paralysis type experiences where beings are seen and, and all of this sort of stuff, um, perhaps what facilitates that is this entropic sort of frequency that the body is operating at 
Um, mm. if, if that makes any sense. And perhaps by lowering, uh, say, your inflammation on the physical level, perhaps to some extent you, um, you yeah, you, uh, you basically prevent that. Can, yeah, the, you know what I mean? That sounds, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I hadn't thought about it in terms of that. But uh, if, if we kind of go with that, it's like um, when our bodies are healthy and when we're operating at an optimal level, it's like the different parts of our bodies, all they're all in harmony and they all kind of act in a coherent way. So in that sense, our bodies, let's, you could even call it your like, energy field, like the, the way, the, like the, the, the frequency or the vibration of each of your individual parts is operating in harmony with the others. And you could say that you have like a higher information content. You're actually operating in a complex and coherent manner. And whenever you introduce inflammation, it's like introducing like a pocket of chaos within that, that harmonized, coherent structure. And it's like that's, mm-hmm. like a, that's a weakness. It's like an opening point. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that does, that's really interesting to think about it in, terms, in those terms. It's like you're, you, you've got a, you're creating this weakness in your, in your entire being that can po- potentially you know, be a, an opening for even more negative influences that would... That would um, have even, an even more entropic effect on your whole functioning. So, yeah, that's really joke, interesting way of putting it. I often joke that there is like a dairy demon, you know, because <laughs> dairy products and gluten products, they <laughs> stimulate your opioid receptors. Right there, it opens possibilities for, you know, more paranormal phenomena. In fact, you know, schizophrenics, their first line of treatment is to remove dairy products and gluten products in order to balance their opioid receptors. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I often joke, oh, that's the dairy demon, you know, if you're having nightmares, you know, <laughs> if you're having trouble with the liberation program of the areolas part, you know, just remove dairy and it will balance up, you know. Yeah. Well, well speaking of fields and uh, electrical energy and vibration and all that, like a lot of people in the movie like we said earlier, they experience an electric shock or they feel static in the room or they have this tingling kind of nerve sensation in them. But there was um, some research, and I couldn't find much about it, but um, there's some researchers that were able to recreate paranormal experiences in Mm -hmm. a controlled setting um, just by manipulating the magnetic field. And I was wondering if you guys had come across anything like that? Um, I think so. I can't remember. I think the name, um, oh, I remember. Isn't, isn't that they, they create kind of like this, this God helmet or something or um, mm-hmm. like these electric, electric nodes that they put on your, on your head and then kind of stimulate you into having a weird experience? Was that, does that ring a bell? Yeah, or they can like put thoughts in your head or... Yeah influence your behaviors and things like that well also in one of the articles on sod about shadow people um they talk about the the mystery the mysterious phenomena of shadow people they talked about electromagnetic fields Mm -hmm. and how they Mm -hmm. interfere with the functions of the temporal lobe creating alter states of perception so auditory Mm -hmm. and visual hallucinations occur so Maybe it could have something to do with that too. All the electromagnetic energy from Wi-Fi cell phones too. That that's what made me think when those uh, experiencers were talking about that high-pitched sound or that static sensation. I know 
when you go into a room sometimes and there's Wi-Fi, you can almost feel it in the inner part of the ear. Hmm. That's interesting because there is an electrical abnormality in the brain, which is uh, an epilepsy of the temporal lobe, which is associated with that type of experiences of phenomena, you know, hallucinations and, you know, and so forth. That's interesting. Well, I've got a, I've got some an interesting uh, bit of info for the nutritionists on the program. Um, so, Jonathan, you'd mentioned earlier the the guy that had that alien experience with the with the pancakes. Now, this might be the same yeah. one; it might be a different one. But it was in 1961, and it, there was a, a chicken farmer, and his name was Joe Joe Simonton. So, I'm pretty sure this is the same case that you were talking about. So, he had this experience so. with the yeah, and he was given three pancakes. And so he, he ate one of the pancakes, but he actually kept the other ones. And um, he contacted Project Blue Book at the time, and so the, the Air Force actually did a study, and they analyzed these pancakes that he had. And they found that they were, or, and well, they sent them to the Food and Drug Laboratory of the U.S. Department of Health, um, Education and Welfare, and... They did a chemical analysis on the pancakes, and they found out that they were actually uh, buckwheat pancakes, but they were made of hydrogenated fat, starch, buckwheat, soy, and wheat. Uh-huh. Now, the, but the, yeah, now the one of the interesting things is that there was no salt. Now, I'll get into that later, but first of all, I just thought that it was funny. So, yeah, buckwheat, soy, and wheat, um, and they were just... You know, they called them ordinary pancakes. So, any any first impressions on those ingredients? Why would they give them that particular pancake? I mean, they could have given him all sorts of different kinds of foods, but the fact that they gave him buckwheat, wheat, and soy, I mean, <laughs> are they trying to influence his physical state that he's more open to interacting with it and hydrogenated yeah yeah (laughs) that was my thinking too like uh, my first thought was that that's those are all pretty evil ingredients so it it, it really seems like they're trying to encourage (laughs) you know a diet that maybe would make you more open to this kind of thing you know if you think about getting back to information theory a little bit if you think about our food what you're introducing to the organism is information in and of itself so you know, taking in a, a chaotic uh, information in the form of your food, um, you know, is going to, in- to introduce this chaos into the system. Whereas if you are, you're, you know, you're very careful about what you're eating, um, you're, you're introducing uh, coherent information that the that the body can work with and, and keeps on using its uh, uh, frequency in a beneficial way. Mm-hmm. But it, it is very interesting that it has no salt. Because, for example, yeah. the mortal nightmare, it was an abnormality of the sodium channel, the salt channel of your heart, of the electrical activity of your heart. Mm-hmm. And we know about the protective effects of minerals in general, you know. And I even now that I'm doing the iodine protocol, I sleep better when I have a glass of salted water before going to bed. Like my mm-hmm. dreams are better, you know, better quality and and less terrifying, so to speak. Well, that's that's interesting too. For another reason, uh, and this is what I wanted to get to, is that apparently, sixty-two um, percent, or around around two out of every three um, alien abduction experiencers have salt cravings. Mm. Now, this is mm. so. This is from 
This is from a study that was done by Kathleen Marden and Denise Stoner. So Kathleen Marden, she is actually the niece of Betty Hill, of the famous Betty and Barney Hill um, abduction encounter from the, I believe it was the early 60s. So she wrote a book about um, a book about the Betty and Barney Hill experience um, with Stanton Friedman, who is a famous Canadian nuclear physicist, uh, ufologist. He's written a ton of books on UFOs over the you know the past several decades, and her latest book with Denise Stoner, who's another um, kind of abduction experiencer, abductee, um, is called The Alien Abduction Files. It just came out, I believe, in 2014, just a year or two ago. And um, but before this book, she and Denise had done this study. So with about, um, I believe it was about a hundred um, abductees, and so they, basically a, a big questionnaire to try to find out the the, the commonalities. Um, the report is called the Martin Stoner Study on Commonalities Among Abduction Experiencers, and so they just analyzed. Um, and asked about a whole a whole bunch of different health and just experience factors and the things that these people would experience. Um, and so I'm just going to go through some of the interesting kind of health-related results that they got. That was one of them, is the salt cravings. So 62% of, of the experiencers had salt cravings, and this was compared to 12% in their kind of control group. So these were the people that reported no kind of alien abduction experience. So 62% compared to 12%. So there is a kind of uh, significant increase in salt cravings among abduction experiencers. Now, um, so just to get into a, a few of the other um, aspects of this, first, one, there was one section on the kind of emotional response that they had to these experiences. So interestingly, there it was pretty evenly split, split um, between kind of two types. There was slightly more people who felt fear and despair while having the, the experience um, over curiosity and pleasure. So uh, just a slightly over half um, were more kind of more negative connotations as opposed to the positive ones. Now, after the experience, the majority of experiencers felt angry or tired and drained. So that that seemed to be the split. You you felt either angry or tired and drained, or maybe even both. Now, four out of five, so about 80% of experiencers had mock, uh, marks on their bodies. So these included the um, like long bruises, uh, scoop marks where it looked like little bits of your of your skin or flesh had been scooped out, and you left with like an op- a little open wound, uh, punctures, as well as burn marks. And about 50% um, had frequent nosebleeds, so mm-hmm. often brought on by the experience. So after the experience, they'd, be, they'd have a nosebleed. Now, um, there was also migraines. So 43% experienced uh, migraines. Now, this is compared to 10, per, 10 to 12% of the general population. So if you just take the like average people off the street, you'll get 10 to 12 percent that experience migraines. Now, 43 percent of abductees experienced migraines. Um, two out of three, so about well, 63 percent had gynecological problems, compared to 33 percent of um, the non-abductees. Now, this was one of the most interesting bits. Um, apparently, around. One to three percent of the general population has chronic fatigue. Or sorry, chronic 
chronic fatigue syndrome or at least the symptoms, even if it's undiagnosed, uh, or reactive, reactivated mononucleosis. 38% of the abductees in this, in this study had chronic fatigue syndrome or reactivated mononucleosis or the symptoms, so un- diagnosed or undiagnosed. Mm. Um, so first of all, um, do you guys have any thoughts on those well, the question is, did they have all these symptoms before they were an abductee, or did it come afterwards? Um, let me find out. I think both. Does that kind of relates to bad diet leaving you open to bad information and bad vibration? Mm-hmm. So if they had it before, that would kind of be an explanation of why they were vulnerable to being abducted in the first place. But if you consider that being abducted may not just be a physical uh, activity. You may be abducted on some kind of a soul level or on an energy level where you're physically still in the same place, but your essence is technically with the aliens, if that makes sense. The virus is very Never heard of it until now, but it is interesting because uh, mononucleosis and chronic fatigue syndrome, there are several viruses implicated, but um, one, some of them are the herpes viruses, which is very common among the whole population, very difficult to get rid of, and, uh, and some infections, for example, an infection of temporal lobe, uh, caused by the herpes virus also gives the same type of epilepsy and abnormalities that we talked earlier, like hallucinations and um, just abnormal behavior and experiences. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I thought okay, the yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, yeah, I, I dropped the call, but I'm back. Um, <laughs> I tried, yeah, the study doesn't specify whether it happened before or after the experience, but then again, like a lot of the, or a lot of the people in these studies had been, have had these experiences like most of their lives, so I, I think it would be pretty hard to tell if it happened, like if, um, you know, if they, if it happened before or after these experiences, because they're both kind of, um, um, what's the word, they've, They've both been like they've been suffering from both of them for a long time, so I don't know if it would be very easy to find out one way or the other. Um, that's in, re- in relation to the chronic fatigue, but then things like the nosebleeds and the gynecological problems, um, those those were reactions to specific experiences. And mm-hmm. another another thing that was a reaction to the experience was uh, paranormal activity, because 88 percent of the abductees. Um, said that they they have they have experienced paranormal activity in their lives as a result of um, of these experiences. So this compares to 44% of the the kind of control group. But the, interestingly, there's a difference between the the types of experience that that both groups report. So um, it's hard to know if we can generalize these statistics to kind of the general population, but um, 
if we do just for the sake of argument, let's say that 44% of, of people, like, so that's almost half of people, let's say 50% of people in the, in the general environment experience some kind of paranormal activity. Now, according to this study, these individuals, they would experience things like we've been talking about. Um, it might be like ghosts or shadow people or strange sounds or odors or like um, or um, temperature inversions. So they'll they'll walk through a part of their house and then they'll be feel really cold, like or you know the feeling like people say it's oh it's like someone walked over my grave or or something like that. So those were the kind of experiences that that most people would talk about, or not most people, but people that didn't experience abductions. But the people that experienced abductions, um, 88% of them had paranormal activity, but the types of things that they described were very specific um, and didn't really have any kind of relation to the things the other people experienced. Now, these were things like um, orbs. So they would see orbs of light in their houses, um, just kind of flitting flitting in and around and about them. They'd have um, kind of poltergeist activity. So this is what uh, parapsychologists called random spontaneous psychokinesis. So this is kind of objects levitating or flying off shelves, um, electronics turning on and off. Um, so weird kind of experiences like that. And then also telepathy, because they uh, they pretty much all of them say that when they if they communicated with the beings involved in their abduction experience, it was always telepathic communication. It was never just a normal audio, you know, vocal talking. It was always telepathy. And so they say that these experiences um, were came about as a result of these uh, abduction experiences and that they felt that they were, um, the experiences gave them more of a, uh, they, they felt more intuitive, more psychic after these experiences. Mm-hmm. So that's just the, the, there's more to the study, but those are the the things that I kind of thought were relevant for um, kind of a health related discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it pretty does interesting seem to be a, too. Okay. Sorry, oh, go, go ahead, ahead Jonathan. Jonathan. Sorry, go ahead. No. Okay, <laughs> um, I, I was just thinking, it just made me think of um, a lot of the uh, kind of spontaneous uh, health effects. Uh, people have um, reported after having not necessarily an abduction experience, but just seeing UFOs. Uh, there was an article on SOT that talked about how witnesses to uh, to a UFO phenomenon all experienced uh, facial paralysis. Um, I know there's other people who have said things like having sunburns, like or sunburn-like effects. Um, and yeah, there's there's quite a bit in, in in the literature. I'm not thinking of a lot of it right now, where people kind of just witness. Uh, UFOs or some sort of paranormal phenomenon and have this kind of physical effect as a result. Yeah, conjunctivitis, pink eye. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah it, it makes me think of uh, when we were <clears throat> talking uh, before the show, one of the uh, things that came up was in Operation Trojan Horse. Um, there was, uh, er, let's see here, Early in January 1969, a seven-year-old girl named Maria de Carmen Ocampo was walking in a wooded area outside of Europan, Mexico, when she reportedly saw a female apparition materialize in front of a large cedar tree. It identified itself as the Virgin of Guadalupe and asked that flowers and candles be placed at the foot of the tree. After the apparition vanished, an airplane mechanic named Homero Martinez came upon the frightened girl on its way home. She was very nervous, he said. She told me what had happened and what the vision had said to her. 
Frankly, I didn't believe her, and I went on my way. A few steps later, I heard a rare kind of music, very beautiful, and I turned around and couldn't see anything. I learned later that the girl was very sick for a day or two and could not talk. Hmm. And there's a number of other, that's just one example, but there's a couple other cases uh, in this book that, that talk about people having close encounters either of, you know, what they would identify as UFOs or aliens or, you know, like uh, shadow people or men in black kind of encounter or religious encounters uh, with, you know, an apparition like an angel or a demon and then are, are sick afterwards for a period of time. Mm. I also thought it was really interesting um, to see the the drastic increase, like a hundred percent increase of uh, gynecological problems. Um, because what's really pre- prevalent among sort of abductees um, and even people suffering of um, sleep paralysis is is the claim that um, that in some way they're being sexually violated. Or um, yeah, yeah, they're they're basically having sex with these these entities or these aliens or something like that. And there's, I mean, there was even like a, a, a um, an article on Sot.net. It was um, it's I think it yeah it's there's there's a singer a popular singer called Kesha, and um, and she was basically uh, explaining in an interview how um how one night she basically had this uh, sort of supernatural experience and I think it was with some sort of entity and she, she basically claimed that, you know, um, she, she, she'd been having, having sex with this entity. But, um, but, but I thought it's fascinating how, how that, that, um, that actually um, sort of transfers onto the physical body and it, it leaves physical marks, you know. It, it sort of suggests that this stuff isn't simply ethereal, and that there is some sort of um, physiological component to it, whether it's mm. sort of like an imprint that's transferred over onto the physical body or something. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure, but it's fascinating nonetheless. Mm. Yeah, there are quite a few cases of that, you know, um, like you said, sexual experimentation, either experimentation of some kind or direct, you know, seemingly pleasurable and, of course, not pleasurable uh, sexual experiences with, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, some sort of hyperdimensional entity. Mm. Well, there's the whole um, legend of the succubus or the incubus that this kind of like, uh, either depending on the sex of the uh, the experiencer, it could be a, a female, um, often reported to be some kind of hag-like um, entity that will show up and, and, and have, you know, while the person's completely paralyzed, have sex with them. Um, you know, it, it kind of makes me think that they're, they're kind of stealing this sexual energy in some way or something against like this, this unwilling participant. Yeah. Like an energetic feeding. Mm-hmm. Well, there was that interview uh, that was on um, behind the headlines they interviewed Nick Redfern, and he, what was the name of that book, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind? He wrote that book. Um, but in that interview, Laura Knight Yajik was talking about one of the experiences she had with an old client where she kind of put her into a relaxed state and gave her, said she had a remote control where she could 
see what she thought happened and at the same time see what really happened behind the scenes. And the lady started freaking out and she said she saw this Jabba the Hutt-like creature who had all these children around them and he would pick up a child and like suck on his face and take all mm. of the child's energy and put the child back and just go from child to child. So a lot mm. of these... I mean, if we consider that they're stealing our energy or stealing people's energy, if that's one of the purposes of these visits or these shadow people, that could explain a lot of the chronic fatigue syndrome and the illnesses mm. that a lot of people get because their life force is literally being drained away. Mm. Well, well, yeah, and this idea isn't just a recent thing as well. I mean, this this, this idea of a sort of um, a non-human sort of entity or force um, sort of feeding off the energy of, of, of humanity sort of stems back, um, you know, from time immemorial, you know. And uh, I think there's, it, it's sort of deeply embedded in many sort of different religions and religious cultures and, and sort of spiritual tra- traditions as well. But um, the first thing that came to, came to my mind was um, Carlos Castaneda and... Um, and when when he speaks about um how the the flyers this this sort of um this this being or this group of beings that essentially um feeds on the life force of uh of human beings and how um I'm, if i remember correctly he talks about how when a child is born um the life force it's like this this ball of light that that basically uh covers their whole body um, but then when, when they grow into adulthood and they become sort of, um, they, 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 uh, they take on these behaviors and blah, 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 blah. Um, and they begin to feed, to feed this, this sort of entity or, or, or these, these group of entities. Then, um, then the life force essentially gets drained out of them up until, um, and it, it stays, stays at the, the part of the, the feet. I can't remember exactly what he says. Can anyone else? Um... It was called that luminous cocoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said it was their awareness. They were feeding on their awareness, if I remember correctly. And that, that, that cocoon usually covers them from head to toe, but um, as they're fed on and as they, they, uh, you know, as they grow older and, I guess, take on um, a lot of uh, illusions about uh, reality, um, it, it, it starts to recede uh, from the feet. And that they're they're no longer the, the cocoon no longer covers their feet, and then it kind of keeps moving up the more and more they're fed on. And he he said that some people end up with barely like you know a, a, like a tiny little bit of that cocoon left. Well, it's interesting. A lot of these things happen to children, you know, when they're young, and proceeds throughout their life into adulthood. Mm. You know, it's almost like a working of breaking down that luminous cocoon, or even. Like you've been sharing the the emotional and physical body yeah. through illness or whatnot, and the and the the girl seeing the apparition and then becoming sick as a result. It's almost like a wearing down of that awareness. Yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting. I think that the uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I was going to say that it's also very interesting that uh, the um, the whole idea of the, the like the sexual energy um, and that they're feeding on this sexual energy it, it made me think about um, 
a lot of uh, the research, and Harrison, you probably know more about this, but I'm, I'm just remembering here that there's there's some connection between people who experience poltergeist phenomenon and um, kind of these, these people being um, at either at puberty or at menopause when they're kind of going through these hormonal changes um, that it can kind of manifest um, in these kind of poltergeist phenomena where, like you were talking about, things flying off shelves and, uh, and uh, objects moving by themselves, um, that sort of thing. So it, it just made me think of that because there's, there's that tie-in with that whole sexual energy type idea. Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a great book, you know, if, if any of our listeners aren't familiar with poltergeist phenomena, um, there's one by William Roll called Unleashed, and it's about uh, a really famous poltergeist case that surrounds um, a teenage girl named Tina Resch. That's R-E-S-C-H. Now, um, I don't think that she was going through puberty, but she was, she was around that age. She was a teenager when it started, and it actually lasted for years for her on and off. And um, but the the thing about it in her case was that there there uh, it was really apparent that there were probably emotional ish, emotional causes for what was going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, but first of all, you know, if for people who aren't aware of um, or aren't familiar with poltergeist phenomena, of, um, it's at least among the people that research it, it's pretty it's pretty much universally accepted that it doesn't have anything to do with ghosts or like other mm-hmm. beings you know who knows that may be a part of it but what really seems to be the case is that it surrounds usually one individual one person and that person will kind of be the 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 center of the phenomenon or the phenomena that brings it on so in this case it was a uh, this young girl in other cases you know it can be young young men and um, so they're kind of the center of the focus of what's going on, and it seems what the that it's actually psychokinesis. So these people are actually causing these events, um, maybe uh, or usually without their conscious awareness. So it's almost like their emotions and their inner conflict is leaking out into the environment and taking the form of this kind of chaos. Because oftentimes the 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 phenomena, the events that happen, uh, are symbolic in some kind of way. So with mm. Tina Resch. Um, Tina was living, I believe, I believe it was her foster parents. Um, not 100% sure if I'm remembering that right, but she did not have a good relationship with her parents. Um, it was very chaotic, um, very, very, a lot of conflict, fights, um, sexual abuse going on with another member of the like the family, and so she was. She just had a, like a horrible childhood and all kinds of these emotional issues going on in the background. And the one kind of one event stood out um, to William Roll, who was one of the lead like researchers that actually went, visited her, visited the family, and stayed with her a long time to 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 document and research what was going on. And the the first time that these this phenomena uh, started. She had just had this big fight with her her stepdad or, or her foster father. I can't remember, and um, and they chased or she'd been chased around her house, uh, the, the the bottom level, and so the house was set up in such a way that you could make kind of a complete circle of the house, and so she'd she'd made a, a big circle, and by the end of it, um, like I mean, they were screaming at each other, and but by the end of it, they the 
the argument stopped, but her dad just gave her a look like of utter disappointment, like he just was totally disappointed with her as a human being, and just shook his head. And so that was kind of, it, it, it had such an effect on her, because it was even worse than getting a beating, because he was just, he just given up on her completely. And the day after that, these events started, and they actually followed the pattern of their, of their chase around the house. Mm-hmm. And so it got to the point where they only had one china glass or one crystal glass left in their in their dining room. Like all of their fine um, uh, cutlery and uh, dishware had been destroyed because it would just fly off the shelves. They'd have mm-hmm. TVs and radios turn on and off, objects just. Um, levitating and and flying around um just crazy stuff it's a really interesting book so i'd recommend reading it but the but what really seemed to be the case was that this was an unconscious like externalization of the of the inner conflict and the emotional things that she was going through she just happened to be uh maybe she had like the the genetics or the body type or something about her that's just the form that it took because it doesn't necessarily take that form with everyone with emotional problems, but for certain mm-hmm. people, when they've got these, when they're going through these changes, or they're having these conflicts or these like deep emotional issues, that's how it will express. It will externalize, and so this was almost a way of her to 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 get back at the people in her life, to kind of punish them or attack them without her having to take responsibility for it. Because she was mm-hmm. conflicted, she did love her parents, but on the other hand, she did hate them. She had anger towards them because of the way that they treated her, and so so it was kind of this love hate relationship. And so because she couldn't consciously express that that anger and that fear and that that aggression, it took itself it it played itself out on this unconscious level where it was the the phenomenon. It was the it was the the poltergeist. It was the just the the weirdness in the house that was attacking these people. So, you know, objects would fly at her, her mom or her dad. And, um, and, she, and so on an emotional level, she didn't have to take emotional responsibility for it because it wasn't her. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, diff- the, different, um, the, the different phenomena would take different forms depending on the person that was observing them. So with her, with her parents, it was a very aggressive um, type of phenomenon where you know things would fly at them almost as if they was trying to attack them but she she had a close relationship with one of her brothers and and with William Roll the researcher it was the phenomena associated with them was much more playful like she was just having fun with them like it was a a fun a fun relationship where they where they had fun so so with her brother for example the the some of the objects in his room which the the door to which was often left locked you know Things would stack themselves up in interesting ways, or um, you know, for William, just um, kind of interesting things would happen to him, so that he could observe them and and you know learn something about them. So it's just very interesting how the how the phenomena had um, you know a wide range of things would happen, and it seemed geared towards the person um, with which Tina had a relationship, and it, it it modified itself to the type of relationship that they had with her. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's really that interesting. Is, it is. That that almost makes me think too of uh, not necessarily poltergeist phenomena, but in a similar vein, the uh, the gold leaf lady. I don't yeah. know if you guys are familiar yeah. with that. Yeah, and she she was producing sort of a gold foil on her skin, 
Um, and many other strange things, of course, happened to her. She was able to predict uh, future events. She had, like, uh, stones or pebbles that would kind of come out of her eyes. Um, hmm. and, but I, I remember when I heard about that story, and I don't think it was Nick Redfern. It was somebody else. But it was, yeah, it was talked Steve, about. Stephen Grouty. Yes, yep. Um, and he, didn't he mention that uh, <clears throat> she had some issues with her husband who, yeah, who kind of, like, that. degraded her worth? And so it was her subconscious way of like, well, if I'm not worth anything, then I'll, my, I can produce gold, you know, which is then worth something. And it was this sort of uh, metaphorical manifestation of her, you know, uh, supposed lack of worth in her mind uh, based on her, uh, you know, unsatisfactory relationship. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um. So back on to the... Um Back onto the, the the correlation between like menopausal women and um, people who are going through puberty and the uh, the sort of the instance of, of poltergeist activity. Um, so so is 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 that connected? Are, the, are, the, are those two things connected because of is it is it the emotional sort of um, experience that those individuals are going through at that time. So, for instance, um, someone going through puberty or menopause, it's said to be, um, you know, an intensely emotional experience. Is it that which initiates this activity? Or or is it, um, or is it a, a, a perhaps something to do with maybe the endocrine system? Um, yeah, does it have to do with the hormones, or is it the fact that they are experiencing the emotions? If that makes any sense. Well, personally, you know, I don't know. I'd, I'd speculate that it's both. So that it's okay. um, that there's, you know, on just base physical level, there's some hormonal stuff going on that may have some effect on, you know, the biology and like we we're talking about, um, or like like you mentioned, like with this whole kind of energy, like information or entropy field and then but associated with that would be the 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 subjective experience of these emotions and you know it could even be that in a case with with Tina Resch where the the emotions are, are so so deep and so troubled that that and that would have a, a physical effect so I don't know it may be like a chicken and egg problem where where it's hard to know which is which is the actual cause um, when it, you know, who knows, maybe it's both. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, it's difficult to tease those two things apart. But it seems like one thing that's, that, that's common there is that there is some sort of major emotional conflict. Like a person's self-worth is being questioned when they kind of deep inside they know that they're worth something. So it's almost like that the two parts of the psyche kind of isolate themselves and the one that's not being deal, uh, dealt with properly gets externalized. That's purely speculative, yeah. of course, but that's kind of what it makes me think of. Mm-hmm. Well, just to just one little thing to add to that, that you know, just to add on to the speculation. Um, one of the things that that Dabrowski talks about um, in his theory of positive disintegration, um, we've talked about that theory on Truth Perspective uh, a few times. We had two shows about it several months back. Um, is that the experience? Um, of menopause or puberty seems to be a time when most people experience what he calls a disintegrative experience. 
so this is these are these times of emotional conflict and um, where things kind of rearrange themselves inside our our minds and our personalities and from which we can either you know grow and reintegrate on a higher level or we can just stay the same but things change things get shuffled around and so i just wanted to add that as another image um to the the kind of all the different ways that we're trying to approach this you know we've got the physical level and we've got this idea of uh of like the the kind of the energy body or the 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 entropy or information within us and it seems like at these at specific times um in the biological cycle so with pu- puberty and menopause for example um these things naturally get shaken up and um with food the food that we eat we can we can break down this kind of integration this structure that we have within ourselves and it can be also just like the the emotional like curveballs that life throws at us anywhere throughout our lives and it seems like any one of these um factors that that are introduced into our lives can have this effect that acts as like a an opening it changes things around so it could be it could be the biology it could be it could be um the food that we eat it could be just the relationships that we have and the 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 crises and the and the just the emotional curveballs that life throws at us all these things can act as a a way of either um kind of breaking down our structure ourselves as we know them and opening us up to all kinds of influences and then from there it's just a matter of you know if we can put ourselves back together in in a, in a way that's it's more healthy and mm-hmm. that uh, that's so that hopefully we we would we wouldn't have to have to experience exactly that type of situation again hmm. well that's really interesting and it, make, it makes me think you know i i i know a lot of the um people that you know i've just encountered on the internet and stuff who 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 have these sorts of paranormal experiences there's there seems to be a lot of temptation to to kind of view that as as it makes them special that they yeah. kind of have an ability that other people don't have um and that you know it it wouldn't really cross their mind that it's something that they might want to try and and stop and that uh, maybe that there there's something in their life is is going in such a a way that it's making them open to something that maybe they shouldn't be or yeah. um that they're not necessarily growing from this experience but more dwelling on the the effects that are happening so i know it, it it's a temptation you know we're we're kind of getting at here the the idea that um you know that that some of these things could maybe be mitigated with uh, proper lifestyle changes diet emotional health those sorts of things but i i think in a lot of these cases a lot of these people wouldn't want you know because they 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 kind of integrate this as part of their personality that makes them special it's almost like they wouldn't necessarily want to try and mitigate these things yeah Unfortunately, that that is the case, you know, like special kind of thing, you know, side phenomena. When people really have to think that if it's the jungle here, right here, like on planet Earth, imagine, you know, on higher planes, it's just uh, as worse or even, you know, much worse, you know, another jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that kind of that points to that. Uh, from a different kind of angle is that if you look at psi phenomena in general, the people that are often associated with really interesting psi cases, they're not what you'd necessarily call, you know, uh, a really grounded, um, you know, together person. Um, it's So it's not as if 
having these psi abilities, for example, makes you any kind of a better person um, mm. or, uh, you know, a more advanced person. And probably one of the, the most um, extreme cases of this that I've encountered um, is a guy named Ted Sirios. And he was studied by a psychologist and um, parapsychologist. Uh, I think it was in the 70s. I can't remember, but this guy's name, the, the psychologist's name was Jewel Eisenbud. And what Ted Sirios could do is, is um, this thing called thoughtography. Now, so the, the skeptics say that it's just a magic trick, but he was studied by, you know, by some really good researchers, including Jewel Eisenbud, who could find no evidence of any kind of deception or fraud. But what he would do is he could seemingly, um, by the power of his mind, imprint film with images that would later be developed and um, have these weird images on them. So mm. he just... And so there were examples for, like, he would create on this film an image of a house. But the weird thing was is that often these images... They would look. They would. They would look like pictures of the of real um, places or objects. Um, but for example, with this this one house that he did, it looked like the house, but it wasn't the house. It was almost as if as if he had created a photograph of his memory or his imagination of the house, because it was it was identifiably this same house, but it had certain things that were different. It might have a garage just slightly in the wrong place or, you know, a window missing or, you know, a window with four panes instead of three panes or something like that. There was also uh, an example of a building that he that he kind of photographed, which um, was a Canadian, I believe it was a Canadian RCMP building, but Canadian was spelled wrong. It was spelled Kynodyne instead of Canadian. So they said C-A-I instead of C-A-N and D-A-I-N instead of D-I-A-N. So this was obviously not a real photograph because the photographs had typos. So it was like his, he was creating this from a, a kind of not 100% accurate image in his mind of what these places looked like. Mm-hmm. But anyways, th- these were the phenomena that he was associated with, but Ted Sirius himself was just kind of a wretch of a human being. Um, so I've got a quote from Jewel Eisenbud here he wrote uh, Ted Sirios exhibits a behavior pathology with many character disorders he does not abide by the laws and customs of our society he ignores social amenities and has been arrested many times his psychopathic and sociopathic personality ma- manifests itself in many other ways he does not exhibit self-control and will blubber wail and bang his head on the floor when things are not going his way <laughs> He was also an alcoholic. He was notoriously difficult to work with. Um, so he was just kind of like this, just this kind of horrible sure. person. Yeah, he was, he was a total jerk. And But he had this, like, remarkable ability. Um, and this seems to be something that that you see in, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a rule when it comes to, to these psi phenomena, but it sh- really shows that, that uh, you know, being associated with these, what a lot of people think of as these really special or remarkable abilities, doesn't really say anything about where you are at as a human being. Mm-hmm. So when we come back to this idea of either abductees or people, um, people who ex- just experience kind of sigh in their regular lives or um, or poltergeist phenomena, 
um, it isn't necessarily a good thing, and often, and it's uh, oftentimes probably a sign that there is something very wrong going on in your life mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. that can be looked at and addressed and changed. Um, I even think that it's possible that um, that psi phenomena are something that are to- that's first of all totally natural to human beings. It may even be the case that that everyone experiences a type of psi um, on some level. But that it's, it only kind of comes to the surface and expresses itself in weird ways, um, or oftentimes it comes to the surface and expresses itself when there is something going wrong, when things are right, and when your when your your like your whole being, your mind, your emotions, your body, they're all operating like together in a coherent way. The sign maybe will still be there, but it won't be expressing itself in such overt and kind of externalized ways it may be it may just be part of your regular life uh it may manifest manifest itself in intuition or um you know just general mm-hmm. intelligence and and social awareness um mm-hmm. but um to the point where um like it's manifesting in poltergeist phenomena i think that or even like with abduction experiences i think that's probably a sign that there's there's something out of whack in your system mm-hmm. um, that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that that makes me think of uh, again something from uh, Keel uh, in Operation Trojan Horse, where he posits the idea that these people, uh, not necessarily speaking to the person being you know um, psychopathic, uh, kind of like the subject you were just talking about, but uh, in the sense that people who get wrapped up. Uh, in these encounters with psi phenomena or with, um, you know, abductions or with, uh, you know, men in black encounters and that kind of thing are built up uh, to a point at which their lives can be and often are destroyed. Um, And I just have a quote here where he mentions uh, people, you know, kind of being turned into prophets where they're prompted by these encounters and given, you know, supposed information about the future uh, compelled to either publish or somehow publicly state this information uh, and then led up to a point where their prophecies are then proven false um, and then they are discredited. So he said here, um, <clears throat> this man, uh, Aladino Felix, uh, when he was arrested in 1968, the flying saucer prophet declared, I was sent here as an ambassador to Earth from Venus. My friends from space will come here and free me and avenge my arrest. You can look for tragic consequences to humanity when the flying saucers invade this planet. Uh, and Keel says, once again, the classic proven pattern had occurred. Another human being had been engulfed by the ultra-terrestrials and led down the road to ruin. There is no clinical psychiatric, psychiatric explanation for these cases. These men, it has happened to women as well, experienced a succession of convincing events with flying saucers and ultra-terrestrials. When they were then, they were smothered with promises or ideas which then destroyed them. Um, mm. So just thinking that, yeah, it, <clears throat> you know, it's it's not necessarily like a gift. And even if there are certain people who see it as a gift and who fully embrace it as though I have some kind of special powers, um, they are often, as Keel said, led down the road to ruin. Mm. It's almost like it makes you need to have too. a certain sense of discernment about the whole thing. That if you are experiencing these sorts of things, it's important not to just, you know, fall into them and think, oh, I'm special, I'm being contacted because I'm special. 
you know, it, it, it's almost like you need to, to keep up some level of discernment and maybe not wholeheartedly believe what you're being told. Okay. Yeah. And along the idea of, like, hanging on to the phenomena or, or thinking that it makes you special in some way, I wish I had a reference to this, but I don't. So, Harrison, I was going to ask if this jogs your memory at all. The the woman in the red dress, wasn't there a story about that where <clears throat> a guy had, had an encounter with this entity that was a woman in a, in a red dress who would um, kind of seduce and, uh, you know, uh, plod with, you know, prophecies and different things like that, um, but then wanted to get away from and stop these encounters, but the entity would not allow that to happen and would continue to say, you need me, you know, I'm an integral part of your life. Um, and like I said, I wish I had a reference for this, but I don't, but it's, that's what made me think of, like, from the, from the entity's perspective or whatever it is, uh, also you know, not just the, the human subject trying to hang on to the experience, but also from the other uh, side of the equation, the, the entity actually convincing the human that they need that encounter, you know, to have some kind of worth. Yeah, um, that's just the source for that. I'm pretty sure um, Lorna Yachik talked about it in the Wave series. Um, I'll try mm-hmm. to find the, the reference to it. Um, so I'll butt in when I find it. Okay. That yeah, kind of reminds me of abusive, abuser behavior, where you're in an abusive relationship with someone and you're trying to break away, and the person does everything in their power to keep you from from leaving because they're getting something from the relationship. They're getting your energy and whatever else you know, they're profiting from. So that makes me wonder, you know, ultimately what is the bottom line with these types of phenomena, like these shadow people or visitors in the night or alien abductions and things like that? Why are they bothering us? (laughs) That's a good question. It made me think of, um, I know there's been some talk in some of the the abduction literature that the... uh, the abductors will say things like "You agreed to this," or that uh, you know we, you've you've uh, you're letting us do this, or something along those lines. Um, same same kind of pattern, you know. You, you you've agreed, so we can do this. Yeah, the book There's was also, uh, the book was the Demon Syndrome by Nancy Osborne, and uh, it was actually uh, it was so it was a woman that had this encounter with this. Uh, this kind of strange uh, woman demon. Uh, Anne Haywood was was the name of the woman. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that just for it. the reference. And yeah, so Laura talks about it in the wave, um, and I believe high strangeness mm-hmm. as well. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea of um, uh, Tiffany, like you said, <clears throat> you know, needing some kind of permission to. Uh, continue the encounters. Uh, it makes me think as well of uh, Hostage to the Devil by Malachi Martin, which is an absolutely terrifying book. Uh, mm. I don't know if anybody has read it, but <clears throat> approach with caution. And <laughs> it's, it's really not something that you want to take lightly and just dive into. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's all those different um, uh, demon possession uh, cases uh, as documented by the Catholic Church 
And uh, there's a number of uh, references in there to <clears throat> the possessing entity needing the permission of the uh, subject, you know, to continue the possession. Now, at a certain point, they would kind of cross over that line and have, like, complete control over the subject. But at some point, they needed some kind of acquiescence to get in, and it wasn't necessarily always obvious. Um, oftentimes it was just, yeah, it was, a you know, a conflict in their life, um, or, you know, they would ask for help in, in some kind of arena, um, you know, or they would basically just be so depressed that they would say, I don't care, you know, and then that would mm -hmm. constitute uh, permission. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's, I think, the most important message from that book is that mm -hmm. it was not straightforward, you know, it was, like, tricky. So it mm -hmm. highlights the importance of working on, you know, on our gaps of knowledge, you know, just so we can protect ourselves from these kind of phenomena. Really. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of in that the the movie The Nightmare that we were discussing, um, where there's the, the one guy who has that uh, experience where he falls asleep and then his, his phone rings and he, you know, gets up, answers his phone and the, the, the message, he, the person on the other end is very staticky and not very clear. And uh, he kind of walks into the, um, into the living room and the, the, the phone becomes more clear. And he's, uh, the, the guy says, I'm wondering if you can do me a favor. And, you know, he says, well, what, what favor? And then it just say, the the voice on the other end just says, "Let me in," and suddenly everything erupts into chaos. And there's um, you know all the objects in the room are flying all over the place, and um, it's almost like a tornado hit. Um, and then uh, he throws the phone down and is trying to kind of you know come to his senses and say, "What the hell is going on here?" Um, but then ends up waking up in his bed, and the whole thing was a dream, even though it seems very real. But that whole thing about you know let me in, like that they're asking for permission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's also really interesting is uh, how how that sort of um, how what basically uh, Carla Turner the way that she said the best the best mode of action um, say for instance for an abductee um, the best mode of action to prevent being abducted was to um, show aggression and show anger. And I thought it was very interesting, and it indicates an element of high strangeness in the sleep paralysis scenario, because um, in that, as, as I said earlier, um, in the Nightmare documentary, um, there is the woman who basically um, recounts her experiences and says that the only thing that worked for her was to show aggression toward this entity. And mm. this suggests that there's, there's something about the way that we interact with um, with whatever these entities or uh, beings are, there's a way that we can interact with them in such a way as to prevent being um, necessarily fed off, you know? Mm. So I just yeah, thought, the, I thought, yeah. No, I was going to say, there was another instance in that, in that documentary where there was a guy who was having an encounter with the shadow people, and he started actually wrestling with them, like grappling with them. And he said that once he was showing resistance and started actually fighting them, they backed right off. So that's just kind of more um, evidence for that that idea. Yeah. I wonder if we can draw a parallel here with our discussion about diet in that, uh, you know, um, and Elliot, the interesting thing that you proposed earlier about, you know, information and inflammation and the, the possible relationship uh, between the two and that, 
<clears throat> when we, I guess I'm drawing kind of a thin line here, but when, when we become angry about the state of our world and the state of our health and say, I'm going to do something about this, that, that anger and frustration can then motivate you, um, you know, and can manifest as willpower, uh, kind of like we were talking about last week, <clears throat> into uh, changing, you know, what you put into your body and how you maintain your health and, and your state of wellness um, so that that, you know, that anger and frustration with the fact that the population at large is being taken advantage of right now by all of these, you know, essentially poisonous things that we're putting into our bodies, um, you know, it could, could motivate you to kind of fight against it by changing your, your mode of operation and in that way could then protect you um, from certain things. Yeah, I don't think that's a thin line at all. I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, to some extent also, this may be very, very speculative, but just to connect a few dots, um, I've just been considering an idea. Um, what is one of the things that links up all of these different experiences? Like, um, um, we, were, we were talking about poltergeist activity and about how that is related to the emotional um, state of being of the, um, of the person experiencing it. Um, what's uh, another factor that, um, that, that sort of factors in is um, you've got abductees, uh, so alien abductees, um, who basically uh, explain that it's their, um, this, this energy is being fed off. Like uh, you've got in the sleep paralysis documentary, she, she said about the black ink, she was feeding off, um, you know, something. Some people said they were feeding off the soul, but there seems to be an emotional component uh, that's present in all of these different things, and it makes me question: um, is is this some way related to um, to your hormonal systems? Is your hormonal system some sort of interface, um, and it can allow you to um, alter? the um the way that you sort of interact with reality i guess i guess the point that i'm trying to make is that by by changing your diet and your lifestyle um for instance on the on our forum um there's been a lot of people who've been um testing um doing something called the iodine protocol and there's been some amazing results and it's actually not only been affecting your physiological system but actually um, the whole endocrine function, and it's been um, strongly affecting the emotional state of these people. And I'm wondering, just to sort of be really speculative, just to try and attempt to connect the dots, is is this somehow, um, you know, is this somehow related? You know, by changing your diet and your health, you alter your um, your hormonal systems, therefore your emotions, and therefore you are less susceptible to, um, you know, to these these instant these occurrences. Yeah, I think another yeah. analogy on a physical level could be made, like for example, when you're strengthening your immune system with the right food, uh, nourishing environment, you are less uh, susceptible to parasitic infections, you know, parasites, mm. viruses. So that can be a nice analogy, like as above, so below, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think just like we were talking about um, the idea of the, all the systems of your body being in working order and being in harmony with one another, um, then you are, you know, you're going against uh, entropy and more towards harmony. And uh, even not just in a, in a metaphorical way, but also in a very, um, you know, kind of objective scientific way, you are creating more cohesion within your physical vehicle, uh, which is then going to result in, in uh, mental stability, clarity, objective thinking. Um, and, and that, in my mind, that can only be a, a positive. You know, it seems like the thread throughout a lot of these things that we're talking about is the giant realm of subjectivity that surrounds all of these encounters uh, in that mm. there are so many interpretations, there's so many manifestations um, that it's very easy to call these people uh, crazy or, you know, misinformed in some way. Um, <clears throat> and that when you have uh, critical thinking, uh, you know, at your beck and call and you come into some kind of encounter with, you know, the other, the other worldly, whatever it might be, uh, when you're able to think critically, you can, um, you can just be much more grounded in that type of a scenario, you know, as opposed mm -hmm. to thinking that, that the shadow being that showed up in your bedroom is some sort of benevolent creature that is going to help you tell the future, uh, you know, you might, you might instead be able to think like, well, this is probably not good. This is probably, you know, a, a, uh, a symptom of something else that I need to be looking at in my life. And so when you have that critical thinking, you can, you can approach that much more effectively. And that critical thinking is, is bolstered by having your body and your mind in, in order in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was well put. Well, I guess we're uh, we're kind of coming down on our our time here. Um, so let's uh, let's go to Zoya's segment for today. She has a pet health segment for us. Uh, let us check that out, and we will come back uh, after this with our recipe, and, uh, and then we'll wrap up for the day. So here is Zoya. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to share with you a small talk by Robert uh, G. Smith, creator of uh, Faster EFT and CEO of Skills to Change Institute, about grieving the death of a beloved pet. Grief is a very real emotion that is tough to get over in dealing with the loss of a pet. Many people struggle coping with the overwhelming loss of a pet can. My apologies on that. Seriously, sorry, guys. That was a snafu, and I played the uh, the segment from last week, so let me pull up the correct one here. Uh, here is Zoya's segment for today. Thank you. Hello. And welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I am going to talk about paranormal, or more specifically ghost stories, involving animals and creatures in general. Apparently there are so many such stories that there are even websites, like a website called Your Ghost Stories, where people share their testimonials of their ghostly encounters. There could be several reasons and possible explanations to such events, 
and sometimes they do have a mundane explanation. But some can be explained by the hardcore science, which shows not only limitations of our current scientific way of analyzing our reality, but also how wonderful and mysterious it is. So I've chosen several stories to demonstrate just that. The first story is about a calf. The person writes the following. My story begins in Dur country, uh, Wisconsin, and happened at one of those dairy farms that I worked at. One day, when I was making the rounds feeding the cows about five months ago, I was giving one of the older pens of cows their grain. I noticed one of the cows was standing back from everyone else, not rushing to eat. I still remember her number, 1781. After I fed the pen their food, I stood and watched. 1781, as it was my job to report sick cows to my boss and also that this one suffered from the flu on several occasions. So she did not really move for the whole minute that I was watching her. All she did was stare at me and shuffle her feet a bit. Getting bored, I got in a truck and drove away to find my boss. When I found him, I told him and he wrote the calf number down and said he would check on her later. I thought nothing more, or more on it and left for the day. When I went into work the next morning, I looked everywhere for 1781, but couldn't find her. I asked my boss if she had to be put down and he said that she wasn't there. I questioned him further and asked what he meant. He then said he checked the computer and said and that 1781 didn't exist anymore. I gave him a sideways look and asked when, he, when she died. Apparently she died two weeks before. And here's the second story. This takes place around 1998 or 1999 in Reno, Nevada. I moved there from Southern California about four years prior and had been hopping between various apartment complexes. My stepfather worked as a maintenance worker at this specific place. Tanamara Apartments was only half built at the time and the back half were areas leveled off for future construction. Behind the back half was a deep, steep gulch where my friends and I often went to hike several times a week. To give you an idea of how the, how the area looked, imagine a cleft that was steep enough to walk down but required one of two paths to get to the bottom. Take the winding animal trails down or take the pipe. If the gulch ran east-west, the pipe ran north-south and was bigger than most water slide tubes around. At the bottom of the gulch, there was a small creek that was surrounded by uh, tall grass and a stand of trees my friends and I had decided to use as a hangout. The branches arched perfectly so there were various chambers with arched ceilings that we could run around in. The day prior, I had been down in a tree fort, for lack of a better term at the time. The leaves from previous years made the floor across the ground and we knew every inch of every chamber. Everything has been normal. The next day, my friend and I, we will call him Bruce, had walk, uh, walked down the pipe, cut along our normal trails, and started walking into the area we considered the door. 
Halfway in, we both stopped dead on our tracks. In the center of our main room lay a blue tarp stretched out over the ground with something underneath. We could smell something foul. We both knew what dead animals smelled like and realized that something was very wrong. We slowly crept, crept out and started uh, making our way back up the pipe, much faster to scramble up, uh, scramble up it on our fours than to go back and forth on the trail. We stopped halfway up to catch our breath, and this is when we saw it. Across the gulch from us, uh, a, back a black dog was staring at us, almost level in elevation and standing broadside. I have seen deer in a gulch as well as coyotes and strays. This dog was bigger than any deer we, have, we had seen, but it was too dark to make out what breed other than very thick with a white head. What Bruce and I both saw and later confirmed with each other that shook us uh, the most were the large red eyes boring through us. We took off scrambling as quickly as we could but stopped a minute later. The opposite side of the gulch was all sagebrush from the top of the hill to the creek at the bottom. There was no more than knee-high. The dog was nowhere to be seen. It couldn't have run far enough to hide. I knew those hills and there was nowhere to go that quickly, even for a dog, especially not a dog that size. When we made it home, we told our friends what we saw. Nobody believed us uh, about the dog or what we assumed was a carcass uh, under the tarp. We were 10 or 11 years old at the time and it was dismissed as us playing prank. Despite the disbelief, none of my friends ever went there again. I never told my parents what I saw. Was it a body under the tarp? It could be, but what was the dog? I researched it a few la years later and found that black dogs with red eyes are seen throughout the world. Some are harmful, some are helpful. Uh, I still haven't fully resolved myself to what exactly we encountered 17 years later. Why, however, is another story. And here's a third story. This happened about two or three years ago. When I move furniture in my room, something odd happen, uh, tends to happen. Things will fall off my walls or desk, and I have restless nights from things constantly making noises. I recently moved more furniture, and things have been happening. That's another story, though. I know for sure that things happen to me when I move furniture in my bedroom. One day, I had moved my bed. It was vertical in my bedroom uh, to my bedroom door, and I moved it so it would, was horizontal to the door. Anyway, I share a bedroom with my little sister, and my bed was about a meter away from hers. As I was falling asleep, I heard a ticking sound, like a bug was crawling on something. It was abnormally loud for a bug do. Above my door, I saw these huge, and I mean absolutely huge, bugs walking above the door. I asked my sister if she was seeing these bugs too, and she was. We called out for our mother and as soon as she turned the light on, they seemed to fade and disappear right in front of us. My sister and I didn't enter or sleep in our room for about a week after that. My mother said that she saw them years ago, and nobody believed her. She never doubted what we saw them. 
She didn't see them uh, when we did. I don't remember how many of them were in our room, but I know there was more than one. I tried to convince myself that these were cockroaches, but for them to be in a bunch uh, that just faded and disappeared the way uh, they did was very weird. And here's the last story. I'm a doctor and work in an elementary school. Recently, as I was climbing uh, the inside step of the school, unexpectedly felt something uh, landing on my right shoulder. Even though I could feel the bird and the breeze from, what, uh, from that of flapping wings, I could not see one. I knew this bird was Francis, a pet, ring-necked turtle dove that I had for 24 years. Uh, he died in September of uh, 2009. All of it was extraordinary, but the really peculiar thing about this visit was that I saw nothing but only felt friend land and sit on my shoulder. Also very odd was that I knew instinctively that it was Francis the, who visited me. It was his presence, and without any consideration I automatically knew it was him. The experience came completely out of the blue, and I hadn't been thinking of him at all. I don't know when he actually left my shoulder either. It was not frightening at all. I purchased Francis as a chick when I was in college, and he witnessed much of my life. On one or two occasions, I took him to school with me to share with the students. He was a people lover and was very friendly. While most of his time he was spent in a cage, he was occasionally allowed to fly around the house or bathe in a sink. When our son was a baby, friend would fly to the crib and watch him. He liked to be around us. After a summer of ill health, he died when he rested on my chest. In 1995, I had a similar sensation and visit from a friend when he died while traveling abroad. All of it is very cool and I wanted to share my experience here. I think the deeper meaning may be that our pets, friends and family maintain consciousness that lives on after they die. They are with us and continue to love us. I am delighted to have had these two experiences. So these are the stories. There are countless more, stranger and even scarier. It seems like we still have a long way to go before understanding this phenomenon. But what's for sure, if we have an open mind, there is plenty of evidence that life is much more complex and doesn't really end with the end of our physical existence. Well. I hope that this segment was interesting. Thank you, and have a nice weekend. All right. There's some fascinating stories there. Thank you, Zoya. <clears throat> we have, uh, let's see, today for our recipe, just to wrap up the show, um, Cuban porchetta. So, mm. <clears throat> yeah, uh, porchetta is a, uh, a pork belly wrapped around a roast or a loin. Um, and so this is kind of a variation on that recipe. Um, so, uh, let's see here. Your ingredients. Uh, now, this, this calls for yellow mustard. Um, it depends on whether or not uh, you tolerate mustard in your diet. Um, at the very least, I would recommend not using, you know, something like Heinz. Uh, a lot of uh, basic yellow mustard has sugar in it, so be aware of that. 
And uh, if you can, you know, get some uh, some good mustard that is not uh, tainted with sugar. Um, <clears throat> so one quarter cup yellow mustard, uh, one quarter cup chopped dill pickles or dill pickle relish. Uh, again, also be careful with what kind of uh, pickles you get. A lot of them have sugar, so uh, you can make your own for this. Um, maybe we can do that recipe for another show. But So we have a quarter cup of yellow mustard, quarter cup chopped dill pickles, two teaspoons of ground cumin, two teaspoons of ground coriander, one teaspoon of salt, one quarter teaspoon of black pepper, two and a half pounds of pork belly, uh, like a whole belly, um, one and a half pounds boneless pork roast or tenderloin. So in a small bowl, combine the mustard and pickles. Uh, In a separate bowl, combine the cumin, coriander, salt, and black pepper. Lay out the pork belly skin side down and sprinkle it with the spice mixture. Then spread a thin layer of the mustard and pickles on top of the belly. Unfold the roast or tenderloin and lay it on top of the belly. Uh, Sprinkle the uh, inside of the roast with the spices and then evenly spread on the remaining mustard and pickles. Starting with the outer edge of the meat, carefully roll everything into a round and tie it tightly with kitchen twine. Since the meat will shrink as it cooks, the tighter that you can tie the twine, the better. So roll it really tight and get it tied really tight. Uh, Rub the remaining spices on the outside of the meat roll and place it in a roasting dish, preferably on a raised rack, but it's not entirely necessary, uh, just so that the meat doesn't sit in the juices. Uh, Roast roast the roll at 500 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 minutes. Mm. Then without opening the oven door, reduce the temperature to 300 degrees degrees Fahrenheit and continue the roast for 90 more minutes or until the center temperature reaches 145 uh, Fahrenheit. Once it reaches the temperature, uh, remove it, let it rest for 10 to to 20 minutes before cutting off the twine and then slice into, you know, quarter inch to half inch slices and uh, and serve. (laughs) So that's the, the Cuban porchetta. So it's basically a pork belly wrapped around a roast with some spices. So you could bury that up. Um, the Cuban part is inspired from the classic uh, Cuban sandwich, which has mustard, uh, pickles, mustard, ham, and pork. Um, so it's just a way to do that without having to make a sandwich, kind of. Um, but you could also kind of like play with the spice combo that you're going to use in the porchetta and do something different if you like. Um, basically just spread it out on the uh, the belly and then roll it around the roast. Um, and then do the roasting. Holy cow. That's delicious. Yeah. Wow. Yep, that is one we're going to have to try out. <laughs> uh, the the problem for me is getting a hold of belly. We have to go to a uh, a butcher, which is a, a decent distance from here, to get a hold of whole pork belly. So if you have easy access to pork belly, I'd say do it up. Yeah. I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, well, um, we really appreciate everybody tuning in uh, for today, and thank you, Harrison, for joining us. Um, it's always nice to have somebody else on the crew. Yeah, and, thanks, for uh, thanks for inviting me on. Totally. Yeah, it was great. Um, contributed a lot of really good data there. And uh, yeah. uh, welcome back uh, to Erica as well. Erica has been gone for a little while, so it's really glad to have her uh, back today. And uh, we look forward to, to having us all together for more future shows. Um, so thanks to our, our listeners and everybody who participated in the chat. Um, and be sure to check out 
the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network here on Blog Talk Radio, uh, The Truth Perspective tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, and Behind the Headlines on Sunday, uh, which is now at noon Eastern Time. Uh, so check those out. Uh, always really good shows there. And uh, that's it for today. So thanks, everybody, again. And be sure to uh, tune in next week. We'll be back next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Time.